And you have formations like Florida Rising or New Virginia Majority, where the point is to get folks elected who are then accountable and who also teach you something about what's going on inside and who you hold accountable to to a particular agenda. And, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. People get corrupted. Big surprise. But then there are people who are not corrupted, who get inside and understand that their relationship to the needs of their community is what they're there for. And they don't take the essentially bribe. And so there there are people like that. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that the folks at uh, Florida Rising or New Virginia Majority or, or some of these other formations will tell you that their point is not only to mobilize, but to, to be in connection with their base 24-7. That the, the, the job doesn't start and end with elections. They have to figure out how to keep keep in relationship um, with the folks that they're trying to move on an ongoing base, basis. That was Linda Burnham. Linda is what one may call a movement OG. She has been in the fight for racial and economic justice for decades as an organizer, as a writer and theoretician, as an executive director. I like Linda for several reasons, including her newest understanding of power, history, and the path forward to a better world. Most recently, Linda is co-editor of a phenomenal collection of essays entitled Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. This is a collection of essays and interviews about on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020 across the United States. We taped this prior to the first hearings of the January 6th Commission. Unfortunately, our conversation with Linda is not dated. Almost every day we see evidence what happens as we don't have the power to check the march of the GOP towards an authoritarian America. We see it in the attempts to advance a national ban on abortion. We see it as several victorious candidates in GOP primaries double down on the big lie by the 2020 elections. We see it as GOP governors cynically use recent migrants to this country as political props as they attempt to, quote, own the libs and throw red meat to their base. We see it as most of the GOP state implicitly that Trump is above the law and likens attempt to recover classified documents at Mar-a-Lago to fascist acts committed by Hitler. Since our lack of power facilitates the successful march of the right, it is very appropriate to kick off our mini-series on power building in conversation with Linda and my mini-series co-host Lauren Jacobs, Executive Director of Power Switch Action, formerly known as the Partnership for Working Families. We often recite Frederick Douglass's statement about power, power can see nothing without a demand. That statement has never been truer than today. Let's listen as Linda, Lauren and I talk about how to build power, the power that we need. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, actually co-host, because today we're starting our fourth mini-series that on power building. I have my good friend and to be excellent co-host, Lauren Jacobs. Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm okay. I, I'm 
and not to be too topical, but this is the, the afternoon before game four, the playoffs. I'm a fierce Warrior fan. I'm a little nervous. Um, by the time this is recorded, we'll know by the nervousness how it rolls out. But I'm okay overall. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I can't, you know, I can't say I'm, you know, a Knicks fan, perpetually sad and disappointed. <laughs> but uh, so I can't say I'm totally invested in this, uh, <laughs> this playoffs, but good yeah. luck. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but more importantly, you're an ED of Power Switch. Tell us more about the organization. What is Power Switch? Power Switch Action is a power building network and our name deliberately chosen is because we believe that there needs to be a change of who makes decisions in our society. So we're 20 organizations and 20 metropolitan regions building power with labor and community together, trying to transform society and the economy in all of our, in all of our cities and metro areas. It sounds both cool and fun and a lot of work, and, and but also really important work. And kind of the name of the organization and what you just said leads into what we're talking about. And that's power building. And um, I think it's super important now in particular. You know, we're going to bring on our guest, Linda Burnham, in a second. When Linda and I were talking, I was saying that, you know, if we ran the world, we wouldn't have these problems. So the problem is power. Because um, if I had the power to change the world, um, the words would win. But more importantly, we'd have a much better society. <laughs> And, and and so I think it's important that kind of power frame because too often we talk about values or perspectives detached from that, from power or narrative, narrative detached from power. So, um, yeah, I like power it being a good part of the conversation stuff. Um, before Brian, Linda, um, yesterday was day one of the public size hearings, um, from the, from the January 6th commission. Um, I didn't watch it, but I saw some of the clips and, once again, it's horrifying. Any thoughts on that? Um, I did watch it um, because I both um, feel like this is a moment that it's important to I'm not trying to say, I mean, I know people had stuff going on. I'm not trying to shade you, Stephen. <laughs> saying like it felt important to bear witness to what happened and to be rooted in it and not to dismiss it as something small, like there was an attempt. Um, to violently overthrow a democratic election or, you know, our approximation to democracy here in the United States with all of the other things that happened with voter suppression and everything else. But the will of what votes were tallied was there was a valid um, push to overturn all of that headed yeah. by the president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't stop trying. Um, no. And so that, that, that's part of the fear too. Um, but before we go further along, let me bring in our guest, um, my friend Linda Burnham. Linda, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, and uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I, I know you're busy doing a million things. Um, one thing you did, you, you, you co-edited a book called Power Can Seize Nothing, which is kind of appropriately titled book. It, it's, you know, it captures the, the quote that we say a lot from Frederick Douglass. I wish we could kind of, I wish that could be our permanent thing to say every day about the importance of power and what happens in the absence of power. But what's your take on where we are today, Linda? My take on where we are today, um, we're in some trouble, is my take on where we are today. Um, and I don't think most of us could have imagined 10 years ago or so that we would be here. 
facing a rising authoritarianism. The hearings are representative of the fact that our democracy is in crisis, in a really deep crisis. And it's in a crisis at a time when the left is not strong. And when the right, although, you know, there's no kind of single thing that is the right, but the right has an enormous amount of initiative and is highly motivated. And, um, you know, Trump is his own thing. And we may come back around to Trump, we may not. But uh, there are many people waiting in the wings at this point um, to carry forward what he started. I was just reading in the paper, I think today, about uh, somebody running for, I want to say Congress out of New York, who um, had a, a, uh, some district in Western New York, who's uh, essentially a Hitlerite and um, has now retracted his fulsome praise of Hitler. But he's not, somehow he is not an outlier today. <laughs> not only is he a not an outlier, he's running for Congress and will possibly be elected. So, um, yeah, so we're in trouble, a, a, a kind of trouble and a depth of trouble that I don't think we could have imagined, as I said, five or 10 years ago. You're not going deep into that guy from um, Western New York, but um, my understanding from the article is that it was something he said a couple of years ago, and he was praising Hitler's capacity to kind of inspire and rile up the, the audience. So I kind of said to myself, oh, so Hitler's the go-to motivational speaker, you know? And, and, and the idea that, that the best take is that he was referencing Hitler as a motivational speaker, is the best take. And the idea that's okay and kind of a thing that that's what's horrifying. You know, that, that things that, that, that we would have thought years ago was simply beyond the pale is deep in the center. And, and that's horrifying. Um, what I thought about you were talking, Linda? about democracy is I think that a lot of, a lot of us on the left downplay the, the importance of democracy. I mean, because of our sense of the failures of democracy in the United States um, and other aspects of your society, we tend to downplay the value of a true democracy, you might say, or, or maybe we phrase it better. I think that notion of downplaying the importance of ongoing thorough participation in all levels of society is just a stage for the right takeover. Because I think you allow people to be disengaged in ways that can support good things. And when they're disengaged and suffering from the beatdown from our political economy, then a lot of folk begin to gravitate toward things that, from their point of view, make sense. So I think that that, that, that that notion that we don't play democracy and operationalizing that, I'm not saying we're at fault, by the way, but simply it, it, it contributes part of the stage that we're living in today. Um, 
Luana, you any thoughts on today where we at? Yeah, I mean, I I'm compelled by what both of you have, you know, started to lay out here about the state of things. And um I agree. And um, I mean, I was just thinking about the congressperson in the western in, you know, upstate New York, and then also thinking just about Madison Cawthorn who just lost his rerun. But, you know, I remember very early on, he was posting pictures calling Hitler the Fuhrer and how he wanted to tour all the sites. And that sort of seemed to be the same sort of, you know, hat tip um, to a very authoritarian point of view. And I I guess I wonder, I think one thing that um, many, um, or is live in some discussions amongst a lot of left organizers or progressive organizers has been this sort of recognition of the the clear um, clarity with which the right um, is seeking to, is unabashed in wanting to have power, control all the threads. And so I guess I'm just curious from um, you, Linda, just when we talk about power from our point of view, what are we really talking about? We're saying we need to have power. What are, I, not the facile way, but when we're sort of saying our work is aiming to have power, what are you thinking we mean? Um, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are many different modes of power, uh, many different expressions of power and, and we have challenges probably along almost all of those modes. (laughs) So, uh, challenges that we need to understand and meet and overcome. Um, so the power concedes nothing. The the piece that I co-edited with Maria Poblet and, and Max Elbaum was speaking to a kind of power and a shift on the left that I think is really important. It's it's one um, element of where I think the left needs to build, but a really important element, and that is that for too long the left side of the spectrum has has not. Uh, been completely serious about the electoral arena and for a variety of different reasons, but we have allowed ourselves to be marginalized or we have disengaged or, uh, you know, for some folk, there's uh, uh, as a point of principle, Democrats, Republicans, it's all the same. Why bother? Um, So abstentionism, there are all kinds of varieties on the left of why folks have been disengaged. And I don't want to say everybody, because there's some people who've had this, you know, on their agenda. But big segments of the left um, were disengaged from electoral politics. So what the Power Concedes Nothing book uh, tried to do is to say, okay, in 2020, so, so I had a lot of arguments in 2016 with folks about um, supporting Hillary Clinton. They were like, uh, no. Hillary, no, not going to do that. And, um, you know, so I, I disrupted a lot of, you know, casual social events <laughs> talking to folks about, uh, yeah, <laughs> because the alternative is not good. Um, but I would say both post Trump and then also for a number of folks out of social justice movements, even prior, I'd say for the past 5, 10, 15 years, people have gotten serious about how do we link our social justice values 
our long-term approach to community-based and issue-based organizing to the electoral arena? And how do we create both the organizational infrastructure and over time develop the skill set and over time develop the resources so that we can effectively engage in this arena and bring to it the values that we've we hold dear. And so power concedes the intention of power concedes nothing was is to say. Not only do you have to do that, but you have to do that and share the lessons. You have to do that and lift up what you did, why you did it, what you learned, what you gained, what you're going to try and iterate on, and what you're going to try, you know, what didn't work and you want to leave it behind. And we felt that um, folks from different parts of the country had lots to learn from each other people who, who were in state-based organizations. So Arizona had something to learn from Michigan, which had something to learn from Virginia, which had something to learn from Georgia, et cetera. And the national formations had something to learn from the state-based formations and vice versa. And we also had a lot to learn about people who engaged trying to figure out how do we move the native vote? How do we move the black vote, et cetera. And so... Um, the intention then of that book is to examine the work of building over time one form of power, certainly not the only one, but one form where you can engage and make a difference and hopefully build um, going forward. Let me leave that there for the moment, and then we can come back and talk about other forms of power. This may be getting into that, so feel free to go with my flow or to change the flow. It's not a problem at all. But when I, I was reading through the book a bit, Linda, one thing I wondered about was what are we leaving behind after the electoral mobilization? And, and I don't mean simply leaving behind a infrastructure to mobilize the vote. I mean some version of civil societies. I think I've been more and more thinking of the question of a durable power and what it means to have durable power. And I think for the last, for the kind of stick, then there has to be some sort of what I call institutions or norms that are part of people's way they breathe that allows them to go forth in everyday life in ways that are still positive. And then I think in some ways, those sort of things and I don't want to use a classic sort of version of civil society, but my little half-assed version of civil society, right? Um, it, it, it's kind of a, a protection against the, the evil stuff. And I think back to just my sense of black folks during Jim Crow, that the reason why you kind of had, you know, most black folks with a different view of America than other folk is because we had both the reality and a certain institution that reinforced the, that, those views. And I think back to this number of my sports thing. I was running a sports show, talk show years ago. And this guy was an ex-NFL player. His son was coming out. And it was about when they were about to go into a, um, a labor battle in the NFL. He said he would tell his son, you need to strike, you go on strike. And that's an example of simply we have a set of institutions that people have trust and faith in to, as, as they act. And so I'm just saying, I, I wonder how, 
beyond the electoral mobilizations, we develop those institutions, but the trust is there, which is a reciprocal situation that can help us go forward. It's kind of long-winded, but I've had it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what people are grappling with. And, um, and you have formations like Florida Rising or New Virginia Majority, where the point is to both get folks elected who are then accountable and who also teach you something about what's going on inside and who you hold accountable to, to a particular agenda. And, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. People get corrupted. Hello, big surprise. But then there are people who are not corrupted, who get inside and understand that their relationship to the needs of their community is what they're there for. And they don't take the essentially bribe. <laughs> um, and, and so there, there, there are people like that. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is that the folks at uh, Florida Rising or New Virginia Majority or, or some of these other formations will tell you that their point is not only to mobilize, but to, to be in connection with their base 24-7. That the, the the job doesn't start and end with elections. They have to figure out how to keep keep in relationship um, with the folks that they're trying to move on an ongoing base, basis. And I think the other piece of the, this that's important is um, that this work, you know, we've got all kinds of different organizations doing all kinds of really important work and. Some of the social justice non in the social justice nonprofit world, there might be a campaign. The metrics are not necessarily all that completely clear. Or the timeline isn't clear, et cetera. There's a there's a way in which the discipline of elections is different, which is you got to get to scale because you got to get the votes. So you have to work at a particular scale. You have to work at a particular timeline, and whether you won or lost is really very clear. So um, just to say that, that there are elements, this is not the be all and end all of this work, but I do feel like this work is an important element of maturing the left in ways that it needs to be matured. Unless you think that it's possible to build a broad base in the United States while avoiding the electoral electoral arena, which I don't believe. I agree with you. You can't. I thought Lauren, you could say something. Yeah, I, th that's, I think this is really great. And I'm also th just thinking about, you talked about, well, we elect the folks, they um, work with the base, they, you know, feel accountable, and sometimes they go afield. What, I mean, I think then also thinking about Stephen's point about institutions, durable um, containers that people, you know, sort of continue to develop their and grow their political consciousness and ability to analyze conditions and act. What might be the sort of, we're at one phase now where sometimes we get to pick people that we want to run and support them, but sometimes we're picking, we're choosing from the best of the bunch. How do we make the transition to, is, you know, sort of what might an institutional, a left that has an institutional electoral program look like? 
Well, you know, we've got a ways to go, first of all, because because of the fragmentation, we don't, you know, we don't, I, we don't have a national strategy. Has anybody noticed? <laughs> Wait, so, yeah, Linda? <laughs> breaking news. <laughs> breaking news. There is no national strategy. Linda, you, Wait, Linda, you missed my tweet? I tweeted out the strategy. You missed it, right? Damn. I totally missed it. Steven. I would retweet it, okay? You'll, you'll be informed. Retweet, text it to me. So, um, so, you know, what that means, I, I mean, this is like consequential and, and we need to get to the place and I'm confident we can get to the place, actually. I feel like the work over the past five to 10 years has um, matured a set of folks on the left to the point where they just have a way deeper understanding of what it would even take to get to something that looked like a regional strategy or a national strategy vis-a-vis the electoral arena, something that could look like a 50-state strategy, something that could entail where do we need to concentrate and why do we need to concentrate there and what is it going to get us and um you know how so you know we we saw in in 2020 extremely interesting things happening in Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania etc so then you know as I say, the question is how 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 do how does the right set of people <laughs> that's moving that work get into the get in the same place at the same time to be in the conversation that goes to okay how are we building on this what are we trying what are we trying to get to what's going to take us there what kinds of resources do we need do we need to double down here. And what does that look like? Um, so I feel like that conversation has ripened a lot. And, um, and, uh, and I think we'll get to the place where we can actually have it. I don't know if that answers your question, but. So, so Linda, this may be me being old and harsh narky today, or maybe just you're talking in shorthand. But when I hear you talk, I still hear things that are kind of sterile from the perspective of people and people's daily lives. And, and say, Quincy, you may have been talking shorthand, by the way, so the, forgive me for that kind of, kind of thing I'm saying. But, but I, I think about the, the, the kind of national strategy that, that I will retweet to you, by the way. Um, it, it, it has to both be, I don't want to say overarching but allow for a lot of local fluidity with local situations. You know, um, I was reading, so a couple, a couple of things. I was reading some of the history of the United Pack House workers, um, who was the meatpacking folk, predecessor of UCW and the activities in the thirties and forties and fifties. And they were one of the, one of the progressive unions there. And the, at the national level, quite progressive. 
because they had people, both the Communist Party and people who were open to them and would work with communists who, who were doing good things on worker mobilization, fighting for racial justice, those sort of things. The base was in Chicago. The decent-sized black membership is also kind of rooted them in good stuff. But when you got out to Iowa and up to Minnesota and Austin and down to, to Fort Worth and Texas, you had these tensions that were both expressed both in terms of national, local, but also a racial tendency as well. So how, how do you handle those sort of things? I, I wonder. Now, I was reading this article that I think it was this magazine, was it N Plus, I think it is? It was kind of capturing um, how we got to the loss of Roe v. Wade. And they're saying how that what appeared to be a lot of pragmatic choices at the time began to move us away from a broad working class movement around a lot of things. And as we began to deal more in elite space politics, um, that, that got us to a narrow view of women's rights, a narrow view of how you deal with the question of, of issues facing women and allowed abortion to become this sort of flashpoint. It, well, it facilitated, right? Helped do so. So, so a long thing to say that the idea of the flesh and blood of people must be inside the conversation because those tensions that, that, that have always happened historically will pop up again. And I just wonder how we deal with those. That making sense at all? Was it too rambling and whatever? No, no, it makes sense. But I want to push back on the idea that e- either um, national strategy or electoral politics is sterile. I just don't believe that that's the case. And and partly I don't believe that it's the case because I've been in the conversations with the people in that book. And and it, far from being sterile, the stuff is extremely juicy. <laughs> and so the ways in which people think about how do I how do I engage people? How do I engage people at the door so they don't just shut the door? How do I uh, how do I bring the culture of the community that I'm in? How do I bring the culture and the food of the communities that I'm working in into the process of talking about people talking to people about who's on the ballot? Now I just filled out a ballot the other day um, for the primary in California. I need a community group to talk to me about who the heck is on that ballot because I can't read all that stuff. So, you know, I mean, I know the top of the line, but I'm not reading through the controller of the whatever, who I don't even know what they do. Somebody needs to be talking to me. So that's extremely juicy work. And that's the that's the work that these organizations are doing. They're they're explaining to people why it matters who the controller is and what the controller does and which person, therefore, you should vote for on your ballot. So I I don't know. I just reject the proposition that this kind of work is sterile. And I completely agree with the proposition that there are all kinds of other work not related directly to the electoral realm that also needs to happen. So people need to be figuring out, you know, if you think that a really terrific food co-op is going to engage people or a community garden is going to engage people in your neighborhood and it engages them in a way that you can talk about social justice values and you can talk about what's going on in your neighborhood, go for it. So 
you know, one, uh, uh, I guess all I'm saying is that one thing doesn't negate the other. And uh, at least more than both things, many things, many, many things need to happen. So I heard you say, Stephen, read the damn book and be quiet. I heard that. And so I, I, I will <laughs> no, read the no. damn book. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm being playful, but what you are saying, I don't want to put know. The book's called Power Concedes Nothing, subtitled How, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. And, and I hear you saying that there's a lot of rich experience there that we can understand and learn from and critique and go forward. And so that's, um, you know, softly uh, said uh, that. And, and just important. another thing, there's a reason that Republicans are trying to shut this down. There's a reason. There's a reason they say things like, don't bring water to people when they're standing in line for however many hours, which is crazy, but they passed that law, right? Um there's a reason for that. And, and, and because, and it is because they know that when people get excited about this stuff, then their hold on power uh, is in jeopardy. We're kind of dabbling about going forward, um, like what do we do from here? And I want to kind of shift that more formally, that kind of part of the conversation about what do we do, you know? Um, and I know Linda, you mentioned that you're involved in this 2050 project. That's giving you some insights as to what do we do. So tell us more about the project and some of the things you're hearing from that project. Um, okay, so the 2050 project, you know, I, this is the conversation we just had, like many, many, many people um, concerned about the fact that longer term thinking is not something that the left does well um, or has done well. And that, um, you know, getting people to kind of look up beyond the next funding cycle or their campaign cycle or the next electoral cycle or the next two years um, is is hard. And my belief that um, there are certain kinds of progress that we can't make unless we uh, develop the muscle to. Um, or develops a vision, I guess I should say, to look out further. And so um, what I decided to do was to, to this is the possibly the only project in the entire United States of America got, that got improved with COVID, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is to say that originally I was just thinking, okay, let me figure out how to get a bunch of people in a room and talk about long-term strategy. So that would have resulted in everybody going home and thinking, okay, that was a nice conversation moving, moving right along. Instead, I got to interview or I worked with um, Denise Perry at Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity and Rachel Herzing, uh, who used to be at the uh, Center for Political Education. And we interviewed 80 people and we asked them questions about the strengths and weaknesses of the left. And we also asked them based on their thinking about the strengths and weaknesses of the left to, to tell us uh, their best case scenario for where the left could be positioned in 2050. We started this in 2020. So that would have been a 30 year, um, uh, 30 year perspective. Right. And um, 
and the conversations were fascinating and I've just been listening to them, many of them again, because I'm working on the final version of the report that will come out of this. And, you know, there's a lot of variation in how people are thinking about this. Um, and, it, you know, there were some folks who, frankly, had a fairly dystopian view of where we'd be in 2050 between uh, climate problems and encroaching fascism. It was like, mm, things probably won't look that great. But there were also folks who looked towards the left having appreciably more political power than it does currently. And, you know, that looked different to different people. For some people, you know, the, we've been talking about the electoral realm. So for some people, they were thinking mostly about um, uh, a different alignment of political power uh, within our, you know, base institutions from local to region, you know, from city to county to state to federal. Um, so some people thought about it like that. Some people thought about or were very attuned to the weaknesses um, in the organized labor, uh, weaknesses in the labor movement, and foresaw the possibility of an appreciably strengthened labor movement and an appreciably strengthened left labor that had the capacity to um, move in relationship to corporate power and capital in a way that the labor movement doesn't have presently. Um, so that's, you know, that's, so as there were many, many sort of versions of where we could be in 2050. Um, you know, people had ideas about what, um, having different kinds of organizational forms that had the capacity to uh, mm, nurture people in their political development um, over time, that the left would have a different relationship to mass communication and be able to at least uh, to, to engage millions upon millions of people with uh, ideas about what a reasonable society might look like, um, capacities that we don't have now and really need to build. So, of course, one of the things that came up in the weaknesses of the left was the weakness of, uh, around being able to build a mass base and the relationship of communicating at a different scale had to do with uh, building a base in addition to organizing, obviously. So anyway, those are some of the things that are, that uh, came up in this work. But I, I'm, I mean, I'm interested, Lauren, you're in an organization called power shift, right? Switch, but yes. Power switch, <laughs> power, power, power shift, power switch. All of that power okay. stuff. So, <laughs> so like tell, light switching your house. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, tell me what this 
any of this has to do with what you all are thinking and doing? Um, yeah, thanks for that question, Linda. I think, so what, one thing we talk about is the importance of not losing perspective on metro regions and then the sort of municipal and county forms of governance as well. Billions of dollars are governed and still to the large degree in terms of metropolitan regions, we're specifically talking about building institutional and electoral um, political power for, you know, black, Latinx um, communities, Asian communities. It's in metro regions, right? That's where it's not saying like that's the only place all of us live, but we are concentrated in, around those regions. So, you know, that's that's the you know that, and I think we take a perspective on saying our theory of change isn't that's how we win the whole thing. We see ourselves running alongside statewide projects and federal projects. We see ourselves running alongside, you know, we've definitely been running with labor for a long time and see the importance um, of workplace, you know, democracy inside corporations, like by having that, because that's essentially, you know, labor organizing at its core is challenging to say, we're going to upend authoritarianism in the workplace where I go in, I have to shut up and just do my job and take whatever you give me. And actually, we're going to upend that and say, no, no, no. <laughs> All of us here who are putting you in your mansion at night are actually going to make decisions on how the conditions work. And and then people have institutions that they're getting used to governing. So I, I guess I want to toss the question back because I, I think my um, my concern when I look at us is it's, yeah, yes, we're not um, strong, but one of the, I think, the sources of our weakness a bit, I will, I am sort of um, quoting Jonathan Smucker a little bit on his book on hegemony, you know, how to hegemony, how to hegemony, how to, um, in this whole sense of like, we treat the movement as though it's like a click, like, you know, it's, oh, well, we like the cool kids. And I think sometimes our organizations play into these ways that, friendships and relationships sort of drive um, the connections and who's working together. And, you know, so for some instance, I've moved from labor to the social nonprofit world. And I think there's so many people in the social nonprofit world are not even aware that there are left labor organizers, left labor members, left, and it sort of escapes. And then it's kind of written off as something nobody can do anything with. And then I think conversely, coming from inside that world, there can be a lot of dismissal of like, folks don't know how to win. They don't know how to go to corporations, right? And not getting sort of the richness and depth of trying to hold together, um, you know, communities, organizations, punching above your weight on a shoestring budget. So I do think that there's a question about what is the sort of, I think this goes back to Stephen saying, what is the institutions, mechanisms, um, things that we need to sort of bring us together? Because I think a national strategy has to hold national alignment in some ways. Yeah, and that's exactly what I don't have the answer to. That's exactly what some set of people needs to be in conversation about. I mean, I'm not the answer person. There's a set of people, sets of people. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is another one. What? So... Sets of people need to have that conversation. We do not have the organizational form that we need, right, um, to create the kinds of alignment 
that we need to develop the kinds of power that we need. All those steps we don't have, right? So the conversation, I mean, yes, there are tensions. Those tensions have to be negotiated. There are folks in labor who look at social justice nonprofits and it's like, oh, so living off a of dead capital, huh? <laughs> and have zero respect for that work, right? And vice versa. So those tensions have to be recognized and managed, and there need to be organizational forms through which uh, people can be in conversation about the fact that, yes, we're working in different lanes, we're working in different projects, we're not giving up our lanes, we're not giving up our projects, and we have a common project. And this is what the common project is. And we're going to get back together and we're going to talk about, are we, in addition to moving our particular lanes, goals, projects, are we also moving our common project? How have we done on that? So we don't, um, yeah, we don't have, we don't, I'm not sure we, I know we don't have the organizational form. I don't think we know what that organizational form is because the left has been through a lot of organizational forms that didn't work. Am I telling secrets here? I don't think so. So we can, we, we can edit that out by there. Don't, don't worry about it. That's the <laughs> so, so, okay. So uh, we've experimented with organizational forms that have not worked, but that doesn't mean we don't need to experiment again. We do need to experiment again because we, if we're going to move this set of politics, they have to be embodied somewhere, right? They have to be embodied, not just in fragments, but, uh, but in, in, uh, in the complexity and in the whole. Um, so, so that's work to be done. We're not there what yet. I, what I want to add to that is... A lot of the answers come from the work. And, and then I would say that we have to do the work in a way that has a couple of core elements to it. One is that it's dedicated to actually working at scale. And I don't mean kind of in a, in a narrow sort of, I got to hit these numbers for foundation grant sort of scale thing, but in the sense that if in a workplace we can't move 80, 90% of the people there, we failed. In a community sense, once we identify some borders around our struggles, if we can't move, let's say, 50% of folk, we failed. But I think that when you try to expand the scale of the work, it changes the nature of the work, both the issues, how we talk about all these things. So, so I would hope that as we talk about kind of the coming together to figure this stuff out, that's one element of the, of the stuff. And the second is we grapple with the question of political economy, um, some sense of what we're fighting for. And, and I, I don't have the answers. I thought I had it last year, but I, I've gotten more humble in my retired space. Okay. Um, but, but I'm serious about that being the question to be, to be posed. I do think that the political economy is both central but also, in some ways, it's common across people. 
Now, I've been fascinating reading issues about rural gentrification. And too often we think about gentrification being this urban thing that Black folks face, you know? And if we think about, we really have a plural economy that's global, that means that we might not have the same manifestations in every part of the country or the world, but still come from the same source. So I think that those are my two kind of things going forward, that, that one, we operate at an appropriate scale, that, that, so we're not just talking to us cool people about stuff, but also we have some sense, we're struggling with some sense over what we're heading towards around the political economy itself. Um, yeah, this has been great, by the way. We, we could I keep talking, but I promise to stay free. I know you aren't, I don't know, at least Lauren not retired. And Luna's doing some massive 2020, 2050 project. I'm just sitting here having time talking to some friends, right? You got to kind of begin to, I say, kind of wind down the plane. But Luna, some closing broad questions. Um, and you can always go back to something if you want to go back to something else. But how do you define Black freedom? Wow, that is, um, I don't have a short answer for that one. You know, I, I really don't. And so you're going to have to do some editing here. I don't have a short answer. And, uh, you know, it puts me in mind if I was in a conversation about a week or two ago with somebody who's about, maybe about 10 years older than I am. And she's um, she was raised in Virginia, in, Cul- in Culpeper, Virginia, Culpeper County. And uh, so she said to me somewhere in the conversation, she said, you know, uh, the Klan met every Tuesday night. And uh, you couldn't you couldn't get gas in town because the gas station owner was uh, at the Klan meeting and the, uh, the sheriff was at the Klan meeting. And so um, so, you know, there's a part of black freedom that is about. You don't have to hear those stories anymore mm. because. Uh, because we've gone so far beyond that, that the burden of carrying the legacies of slavery uh, that those burdens have been let loose and um, that you're not shadowed by uh, four or five hundred years of colonialism and slave trade and slavery Um, and that your psyche is free of that so there's a side of black freedom that is not imaginable to those of us living today, I think, because it's really hard to imagine a time when, you know, you're not, uh, you're not carrying the weight of your ancestors. It's hard to imagine that, but there'll be a time when that comes. I wouldn't dare edit that, Lynn. That was phenomenal. Seriously. That was like, you had like phenomenal to me. Like, oh my God, phenomenal, phenomenal. That was like way out the park using a baseball analogy. That was incredible. Seriously. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. What books are you reading? Articles are you reading? Um, you know, I read a great book. I was at my mom's house um, and I grabbed a book off her shelf and it's called, I'm gonna show, it was called Dancing in the Revolution. <laughs> Stretch Johnson, Harlem Communist at the Cotton Club. It is, so this is what happens when the left actually has a mass base. 
it attracts people of every kind and variety. It attracts dancers from the Cotton Club um, who rise to become really fabulous organizers. So I highly recommend this book, Stress Johnson. Um, And I'm reading one of my, uh, a good friend, I'm an old lady. So uh, one of my good friends wrote a book that's called, um, what is this thing called? Alive Until You're Dead. (laughs) Alive Until You're Dead, Notes on the Home Stretch. And Notes on the Home Stretch is about dealing with mortality. I call it the upside of dying. So um, I've been reading that. And I've been reading um, Abolition Feminism Now, uh, Angela Davis and Gina Dent and... Beth Ritchie uh, book on the relationship between feminism and black feminism and uh, freedom. We're going to bring you back to have Lugler report back on those three books. I mean, new episode. <laughs> Linda reports back. Okay. That, that sounds fascinating. But I'm, all, I'm also driven by music a lot. And a lot of times music helps me get through the day. What sort of music kind of gets you going through the, the, the dark times, picks you up and rolls you through? Well, I'm driven by music and by dance. And so when I'm, uh, I, I love to dance and COVID has not been good on the whole dance side of things. I was learning tango from a terrific brother from Cote d'Ivoire and you can't be up on people in COVID. So no tango for me. But anyway, what I, what I listen to is, um, when I'm just around the house trying to do dishes or cook or something, I listen to a station called Radio Africa Online. It's out of Manchester. I highly recommend it. You will be bobbing around your house. So Radio Africa Online. Uh, sometimes I listen to a salsa station when I'm listening to something that, uh, um, I also really love uh, piano. I played a little piano when I was a kid, so I like to listen to Keith Jarrett or Thelonious Monk or Chucho Valdez or sometimes Beethoven piano concertos. I like I like a piano. Yeah, McCoy Tyner, any kind of piano. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my favorites also. I, I played for maybe about... Three weeks, I got tired and I quit. My parents let me quit. I'm thinking about but... getting a piano in my yeah, old okay. age. Yeah, I've been okay. offered one. Well, get it and we'll come back and record you. <laughs> no. Lynn, this has been phenomenal. So thanks a lot for this, okay? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. It was great talking to both of you. And Lauren, thanks for joining me. This is going to be a good mini-series. I'm, I'm power building, by the way. I'm really excited to uh, work with you on this stuff and, and kind of have more guests like Linda who can both be exciting to talk to and fun to talk with and very educational as well. So thanks a lot, Lauren, for you as well. Thank you for inviting me. This was a great way to kick off our mini series on power building. Elections are not the only arena where we build and contest for power, but it is an important one. And Linda helps us to understand how we can successfully build electoral majorities and build 
the thick relationships with working people that allow for successful action beyond elections. This is an incredibly hard task, but it is not an impossible task. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. And please check out our co-sponsor, Convergence's website at convergencemag.com or look at his Facebook page. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build a Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the, the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests, future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at Stephen at BlackWorkTalk.com and promise to get back to you. Until next time, stay safe and be well.